Good morning, everyone. Hey, I know it's cold. I know a number of you would not mind still being bundled up in bed. I wouldn't mind that myself. So I just want to greet you with some energy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for coming out. Um, As I say, even though it's cold. And Pretoria does this to me every year, hey? I feel like, you know, winter just comes uh, like a slap in the face, just comes absolutely out of nowhere and then just hits you hard. But uh, anyway, we will adjust. Um, Wonderful to be with you, to worship with you this morning. We are back in the Gospel of Mark, back in the Gospel of Mark. And... Mark is a fast-paced gospel. As we work our way through this book, you'll notice that Mark moves along very quickly. Sometimes even in such a way that various sections don't even seem to be um, kind, of, kind of connected. You know, not, not that they don't connect, not that they, they, they don't fit together, but that Mark doesn't put a lot of effort into um, actually smoothly transitioning from one section to another. In fact, a number of people have said um, that the feel of Mark is almost like a slideshow or a fast-paced slideshow at that. Somebody's showing you a bunch of different pictures and instead of telling you the story, uh, you know, in, in, in more of a movie type way, it's kind of this picture, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And it just goes and goes and you have to be on your toes. We've already seen Mark begin this book by quoting prophecies from the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Malachi. Promising that a messenger would come who would announce good news. A messenger will come before a king preparing the way for him. And the Old Testament context we saw of these prophecies... Um, shows that the king who would come after this messenger would come both to judge and to rescue and rule and rule in an incredible one-of-a-kind way making all things new and right. And then from this prophecy Mark jumps to verse 4. John appeared. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here, bam, here is the promised messenger, the prophesied messenger. And in very short time, without sharing very much about John the Baptist, certainly compared to some of the other Gospels, 1 verse 9 then moves forward. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Bam, here is the king that John was announcing. And we will look today at Mark's account of Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus' preaching. Again, moving ahead quite quickly. Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, the description of Jesus' baptism and of his temptation in the desert or, as I've said, quite brief and to the point. Mark just emphasizes, and when he came up out of the water, immediately 
he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then in verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now if you remember back to our first week in Mark, we explained that this Son of God title is jam-packed with meaning. It carries several layers of significance. It points to Jesus as the promised and long-awaited King. It points to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, more than a man. He is God Himself. And it points to the fact that Jesus is the one who emulates and obeys God the Father perfectly. He is the Son, the reflection of the Father. And just as the term Son of God is packed with significance and several layers of meaning, so too is the baptism of Jesus. When Dumi preached on Jesus' baptism from the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago, he spoke of Jesus' baptism as consecrating him or setting him apart for his ministry as a priest, as a mediator between God and man. And that, that symbolism, that significance is certainly there. On another level, Jesus' baptism points to him as the perfectly obedient Son of God. You see, baptism was a way for non-Jews to enter Judaism. It was a sign of their commitment to enter into covenant with God, their conversion, their, their turning away from their previous way of life, their previous allegiance, allegiances, and now them entering into covenant with God. And a covenant is a special relationship marked by specific commitments to one another. And of course, the Jews were supposed to be in covenant with God. But we know from our Old Testaments that the Jews had not been faithful to that covenant. And consistently so. They had not lived as they had promised to. They had not... God did not have their whole hearts. They were not devoted to Him and Him alone as they should have been. Though they were God's covenant people, they were not living like it. So John comes and he preaches about sin, about the people's unfaithfulness in their relationship with God. And the Jews who heard this message and saw their sin recognized their failure to live according to the covenant with God and were coming to be baptized, essentially recognizing it's as if I haven't been in covenant with God. I haven't been living like I'm in covenant with God. So now, let me make a new commitment to God and to living faithfully in covenant with Him. And we know from elsewhere in the Scriptures that Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. This is of crucial, crucial importance that we understand this. He never sinned. His baptism is not a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew, Jesus explains that he was getting baptized because it was necessary for fulfilling all righteousness. 
This is something he needed to do in order to live a life of perfect obedience before God. A life in which he was faithful to the covenant relationship with God in a way that nobody had been. A life not just in which he never does anything that God forbids, but also in which he's faithful to do everything God commands. Okay, let me say that again. Not just a life in which he doesn't do anything God forbids, but also a life in which he's faithful to do everything God commands. And so this baptism was necessary for him to live as the perfectly obedient, faithful Son of God. To fulfill all righteousness. And what do we hear God announced from heaven? We hear, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Right? You are my beloved son, and you are living in perfect obedience to me. Everything about how you are living is pleasing to me. There is no sin in your life, and you are doing everything I call you to. I could not be more pleased. And what is happening with the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove? Well, once again, this is packed with symbolism and significance from the Old Testament. But at least part of what is happening here is Jesus' anointing and empowering to fulfill the mission God has given him to do. And we joked in our first sermon on Mark that the word Christ is not a surname. Right? We talked about how uh, oftentimes people will think it's a surname, but it's actually a title. That means Messiah or anointed one. And the whole idea of an anointed one, remember, was someone who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a special and important job. A God-given job. A God-given role. Priests, prophets, and kings would all be anointed with oil as an outward symbol of the reality that they had received empowering from the Holy Spirit to fulfill their role. Okay? The power is not in the oil. It's just a symbol of the empowering of the Holy Spirit to fulfill their role and to fulfill it well. That's, um, so here, right, as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, we see the Holy Spirit coming down on him. Right? To empower him for his mission as the Messiah. As the anointed one. Not just any king, not just a prophet, not just a priest. The prophet, the priest, the king. The anointed one, the Messiah. But you might think to yourself, okay, well, if Jesus is God, why why would he need empowering from the Holy Spirit? And that's a very good question. And the answer to it is that Jesus' mission required him to obey God fully as a man. Okay? We will see as we keep going through Mark, Jesus got hungry. 
Jesus got tired. Jesus' temptations from Satan were real. Something he really had to stand up to and say no to. You see, Jesus did not just look like a man. He wasn't just pretending to be a man, as if this was just some sort of a, a play or drama or movie. He was fully man. And he lived here on earth as a man. And that's why he could die for us as our substitute on the cross. Because he had obeyed God perfectly as a man. Right? He could take our place because he had done what we have not done. Because he had been the perfect, true son of God. Actually, just uh, I'd encourage you guys to spend some time, if you can, take a look back at, at uh, Dumi's message from a few weeks back. Because uh, in, in Matthew, where uh, Matthew gets into much more detail about these specific temptations, you'll notice, right, in, in, uh, as uh, Dumi explains, a lot of these temptations specifically that Jesus had to face were temptations to not just live out the mission God's given him to be perfect, to be perfectly obedient as a man. But they were rather temptations to take shortcuts, to use uh, the fact that he is God, right? To cut corners and to make things easier for himself. He had to fulfill his mission as a man. And he faithfully did so. He obeyed God perfectly as the true Son of God. Now, let's look at Mark's account of the temptation of Jesus. Again, as I I said, much briefer than, than in Matthew. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Okay, so immediately after his baptism, Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. In the Garden of Eden, not long after God created man, before sin entered this world, Adam was tempted by Satan and chose to believe Satan over what God had said. Satan convinced him that God was in fact not good and not trustworthy, That God was holding good things back from him. And that what Satan was offering him was actually better. And so, Adam failed as the son of God. And he plunged this world into the curse of sin. Later in the Old Testament history, God enters into a special covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. After he freed them from slavery in Egypt. Collectively, as a nation, they were called to be God's son. But in their 40 years in the wilderness, and when we say wilderness here, it's important we realize we're not talking about uh, some sort of idyllic, beautiful uh, setting. Okay? When we're talking about wilderness here, you should think desert, a place of very little food, very little water, isolation, snakes. Wild animals, a difficult and dangerous place to be. So in their 40 years in the wilderness, 
As they moved from Egypt to the promised land, they faced many difficulties and temptations. And we see again and again they failed God by doubting His goodness, doubting His trustworthiness, and leaning on their own understanding. Israel failed as God's son. But now Jesus is in the wilderness, facing the difficulties and dangers of the desert for 40 days. Okay, notice that number there. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. That number is not coincidental. It's supposed to make us make that connection. To think of the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness and to take note of the contrast and how Jesus handles the same situation. How Jesus faces the temptations by Satan and how he comes through the time of difficulties and trial, still trusting God, still faithful to him. He will not fail where others have. He is the faithful, obedient, true Son of God. Now, let's look at Jesus' preaching. Starting in verse 14, Mark tells us, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, And believe in the gospel. Now Mark doesn't elaborate at all on the circumstances of John the Baptist's arrest. But we know from other gospels that it was basically for preaching against the sin of Herod. One of the rulers at the time. And after John was arrested we see Jesus begins his preaching ministry. Let's look at Jesus' message part by part. Jesus said... The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Now we've already talked in a previous sermon about how amazing it is that Mark starts this book off with a prophecy over 700 years old. And how that proved, proves to us a number of things. Right? You might remember we said that it shows us that God coming to rescue us was not just a brief emotional impulse. It wasn't something that that God felt like today and might not feel like tomorrow. Something that might change with time. No, rather it was a fixed decision from long ago and one that God remained committed to. It shows us that God keeps His promises. And it shows us that God has control over history. That He can bring to pass what He promises. He doesn't just want to keep his promises. He can. He will. Always. And of course, this should fill us with confidence. It should fill us with confidence that God will keep other promises he has made. Promises about Christ's return. Promises about our eternity with him. And that God is able to pull all those promises off. He will make them happen. His will will be done. So, we're reminded of these same things here, right? Because the time is fulfilled. The time has come. What God has promised 
is coming to pass. What you've been waiting for, it's now here. God is doing exactly what he said he would. And brothers and sisters, there's at least one more thing that should strike us with this. And that is the grace of God. The grace of God. And here's what I mean by that. We are the ones who rebelled. We are the ones who sinned. We are the ones who are indebted to God. We owe Him. But God is the one who has made a plan for our sin to be addressed. He's the one who's made a plan for our debt to be paid in full. And now He's saying, that plan that I made to fix this mess that you made, to save you rebels, to reconcile you to me, that plan is now coming into action. The time has come. The plan is being fulfilled. If we think about this, it's, it, it should amaze us. It should amaze us. God owes us absolutely nothing. But he is the one who kindly fixes everything. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now. The plan is unfolding. God's kingdom is right at the door. And why? Why is God's kingdom right at the door? Because Jesus the King is here. This phrase, right? The kingdom of God and other phrases similar to it come up a lot in the Gospels. And it can be a little bit difficult to understand. One of, one of the things we'll see in Mark is that many people in Jesus' day didn't understand this properly, right? They, they assumed that the Messiah would come as a conquering military leader who would overthrow the Romans in battle and take back the land of Israel for the people. But that wasn't God's plan or approach. Rather, what we see in the Gospel of Mark and indeed throughout the New Testament is what a lot of scholars call already and not yet. Already and not yet. Is the kingdom here? Yes, it is already. In one sense. And in another sense, not yet. Not yet fully. In a very real way, the kingdom has begun. As people recognize Jesus as the true king of kings, and as they devote their lives to him, he rules in their lives. And as he rules over his people collectively, he's ruling in the church over all the lives of all those who believe in him. That's, that's the already aspect. And the not yet aspect is what is still to come. When Jesus will punish all those who reject him. When he gives us our resurrected glorified bodies. And when he overturns all the effects of sin in this world. Sickness, disabilities, pain, death. But even though, my friends, even though those aspects of God's kingdom 
uh, God's kingdom and his reign are still future. His kingdom is still very real now. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The true king has come to rescue and to reign. How will you respond? How will you respond? And the answer, right, is that we must all, Jesus tells us, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Throughout the New Testament, we see this call to both repentance and belief. And the reality is that these are not so much two separate but connected things as they are two inseparably connected things. Okay? Two sides of of the same coin. You can't truly have one without the other. Two inseparably connected things. Now, so far in Mark, I told you that one of the the main themes of Mark is who is this man? Who is Jesus? And here we, at 15 verses in, we've already seen this. We've seen Mark's opening testimony in the first verse. His statement that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the true King, and the perfect Son of God. We've seen the prophecy from Isaiah and Malachi that Jesus is the coming King. And that he is God himself. We've seen the testimony of the forerunner prophesied uh, in that prophecy. John the Baptist. That Jesus is the king that he has been announcing. That he's been preparing the way for. And that Jesus is God himself. We've seen God the Father in Jesus' baptism. Affirm Jesus as his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. We've seen the Holy Spirit anoint Jesus for his work as the promised Messiah. And now we've seen Jesus himself claim to be king and God. You see, if John the Baptist's message was repent, prepare the way, the king is coming. Jesus' message is repent, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because... I'm here. The King has come. The King has come. Already, just 15 verses into Mark, the weight of testimony about who Jesus is, is massive. This is no ordinary man. This is no simply great teacher. This is the Messiah, the King, God Himself. And we must believe. We must believe. We must respond in belief. Jesus is the true King and God, very God. And we must see the sinfulness of our sin against Him. We must see and believe that Jesus is God's way of rescue for us. That His perfect obedience to all God called Him to. Fulfilling all righteousness. Being the perfect Son of God. That all of that makes him able to be our substitute in a way that nobody else can. We need him. We need his perfect righteousness. When he took our place on the cross, he was able, fully able, 
to meet all God's holy and righteous expectations. So that our sins can be fully paid for and forgiven. So that we can be declared righteous in God's eyes. We must believe that Jesus being king is in fact good news. It is good news because of the type of king he is. We must want to submit to him. We must want to live for him. That's what true believing faith does. You know, the book of James tells us that the demons know who Jesus is. Belief, my friends, belief is not just being able to answer the question correctly. Right? The sort of belief that the, the demons have is not saving faith. Saving faith, believing, is knowing who Jesus is and responding as you should. Responding, wanting Him to be the King that He is. Wanting to bow before Him. Happily receiving His rescue. Happily turning and following Him. I said that repentance and faith are are inseparably connected things in the sense that you can't truly have one without the other. Well, this is what I mean. The idea behind repentance is to have a, a thorough change of mind and outlook and heart that results in a clear change of behavior. So as we believe that Jesus is who he truly is, it brings about, it must bring about, clear change in our lives. It must bring about repentance. We see Jesus as God and King, and we turn away from allegiance to anything other than him. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We don't live for the pleasures of sin anymore. We fight against our addictions because we know that even though we seek comfort in them, even though we find fleeting pleasure in them, it grieves us to know that that it displeases our God. Drunkenness, pornography, and lust. These things are not pleasing to Him. So we want to turn away from them. And we believe, of course, also that His ways for us are better. We commit to trusting and following and obeying and worshipping and treasuring and prioritizing, preferring Jesus, living for Jesus. Our life is about Him. We turn away from anything and everything else. And we turn to Jesus because of who He is. So, have you repented and believed? This is not the same question as saying, have you been attending church It's not the same question as saying if you received a form and you needed to check a box 
for what religion your family is, which box would you check? It's not the same as saying, as we've already said, right? Can you answer some theological questions about who Jesus is, just like the demons can? Have you repented and believed? Have you seen that sin is truly sinful? Because it's rebellion against a glorious and good God. Have you felt your need for forgiveness? Have you recognized that you're not going to be able to meet God's righteous standards? No matter how hard you try. Have you realized that you need, you need, you need Jesus to be your substitute? That there is no other way. You need the perfect Son of God, the one who fulfilled all righteousness. And have you seen that Jesus is the true King? Who is worthy of being lived for? And have you turned from your rebellion against him? And from preferring or prioritizing other things? Right? And that original temptation in the garden to think that, that, that somehow there's better things out there than what God has for us. Have you turned from that and turned instead to God himself and to realizing that he is the greatest treasure and given your life to living for Him. Right? Now we believe in salvation by grace. So my point is not that you do this perfectly. But evaluate your heart. Is Jesus King? And do you love for Him to be King? And do you Desire to turn from sin and to live a life pleasing to Him? And do you see that He and He only can pay the price for your sins and be your representative before God, your righteousness, so that God, when He sees you, says, not guilty, justified, perfect, Complete righteousness. Do you recognize that? The time is fulfilled. God Himself, the promised rescuer and ruler, has come. If you've not done so yet, please repent and believe in the gospel. Amen.